0: Well, last week in Daniel chapter 9, we saw one of the great prayers of the Bible. As we come to the second part of Daniel 9 today, we're going to see one of the great prophecies in the Bible. In the first part of chapter 9, Daniel was praying and trying to determine what does the future look like for his people, the Jews. And God showed him through the scriptures, scriptures such as Jeremiah twenty-five eleven through 12, where the Jews would be released from captivity after the period of 70 years. And then God sends the angel Gabriel to show Daniel what is going to happen after this 70-year period. Uh, And this is the prophecy we're going to be looking at today called the 77s of Daniel. As we look at this passage today, what we're going to see again in astounding detail, and when I say astounding detail, I don't use those words uh, flippantly. God will show us down to literally the very day Uh, when these events are going to happen, over 500 years before they took place. And as we look at things like this today, what it does is it helps us to have confidence in the Word of God. When when you have God's Word, when you have the Bible, passages like what we're going to look at today are yet again proof as to why you can know and trust that this is the very Word of God. And it's also something that helps us in our day where so many are fearful and unsure of what is happening in the world around us. As we look at the times in which we live, a passage like what we're going to look at today shows us God has a plan. God is in control. And so even though things may seem to be spinning out of control around us, we can trust and we can have peace knowing that God is on the throne and he's in control. So I invite you to look with me now as we turn in our Bible to Daniel chapter 9, where we're going to read verses 24 through 27. It says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, you remember Daniel was trying to understand what's going to happen to the Jews. So when we read in verse 24, your people, this is speaking specifically of the Jews. And when it talks about the holy city, this is a reference to Jerusalem. And when we read that 70 weeks have been decreed, uh, what we need to do is start by establishing what a week means. Now, you may be thinking, well, Roger, a a week is seven days. Well, that's how we typically think of it. But as we're looking here in Daniel 9.24, here here is the actual Hebrew. Now, in Hebrew, you read from right to left. So when I talk about things being followed, don't read it as we do English. It comes this way. And so you see that word highlighted in yellow uh, that's translated as sevens. It's It's weeks, but it's Shaveyu. And in in Hebrew, when you put an S on the end of a word, you use the ending im, And so this is a plural form, shavayu, of weeks. And it literally means seven. This word for weeks is found eight times in the book of Daniel. Now, six of those are here in chapter 9, and two will be in chapter 10. The six times in Daniel chapter 9, it is always followed by a number. But when we get to chapter uh 10 what you find there is it's followed by the word yom yom is the hebrew word for day and again it's plural uh here so you have yamim which is the plural for days so in chapter 10 it is literally weeks of days and that's speaking like we think of a week 7 days but here in chapter 9 whenever we're talking about the sevens the weeks here It's speaking of years. Now, I told you uh, earlier in this series that whenever you come across a passage of Scripture, you always allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. So another thing that tells us beyond the linguistics that we're dealing with years is just what the Bible says about these weeks. Because all throughout the Scripture, it points to a 360-day prophetic year. It's called the time, times, and half a time, as we saw back in Daniel 7.25. We'll see it again in 12.7. It's also found in Revelation 12:14. It's equated with 12,60 days in Revelation 113 and 126, which is equated with 42 months in Revelation 11,2 and Revelation 135. So this is a period of three and a half years that we're dealing with. And as we're talking about the, the times here, I said 360-day prophetic year. We need to translate this into our modern calendar. We use what's called a Gregorian calendar, and that uses a 365-day year. Now, at this point, some of you may already feel this glaze factor coming over. I'm throwing a lot of information at you, right? You've heard the saying, don't miss the forest for the trees. And so I want to tell you what the forest is before we go into any more detail about the individual parts of this prophecy. As you look at verse 24, you see that this prophecy is to point to the coming Messiah. And what God does is the first thing he tells us is there will be three things that the Messiah will accomplish. In verse 24, he says it will be to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and then to make atonement for iniquity. So the Messiah is coming, Daniel was told, to deal with sin by paying the penalty of death that was owed for our sins. And this was done when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And this prophecy is telling us when Christ would come, when Christ would make this payment. Again, 500 years before it took place. Now, there's a second set of things tied to the coming of the Messiah that you see in verse 24, and that's the second set of threes. It says, He will bring in everlasting righteousness. He is coming to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Now, these three things are pointing to the second coming of the Messiah. Jesus Christ came the first time to be crucified, and Jesus Christ is coming again in order to establish the millennial kingdom. And so these are two separate sets of things both accomplished through the coming of Christ. One is the first, and the other is the second coming. And as God is revealing these things to Daniel, he gives a specific event that is going to start the prophetic clock. And we see that in verse 25. It says, so you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree. If you write in your Bible, you can underline a decree. Because that is the event that is going to kick off the seventy-sevens. Now notice that the decree says it will be to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, in the scriptures, there are four decrees that could possibly possibly be in view here because they were issued by a Persian ruler that dealt with the Jews and it dealt with Jerusalem. And so we have to look at the four decrees to figure out which one we're dealing with. The first was Cyrus decree, which was issued in 538 B.C., You'll find that in passages like 2 Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. It's found in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and again in Ezra five thirteen. Now that decree allowed the Jews to return to the land and begin rebuilding the temple. I want you to remember the Jews right now are in uh, Babylonian captivity. The 70 years are coming to a close. We're going to see as we get to the end of this book that the king will allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple That had been destroyed. Now, this decree is not the one that is in view because notice the decree says that plaza and moat will also be rebuilt in times of distress. So it's not just the rebuilding of the temple, it's dealing with the fortifications, it's dealing with the infrastructure of the city. The second decree was issued by Darius I in 520 B.C., and we find that in Ezra chapter 6. This decree is a confirmation of the first one we just talked about. It also deals with the return of the people to rebuild the temple. So while those are key elements, the rebuilding of the temple was significant, it is not the fulfillment of the full prophecy. The third decree was issued by a guy named Artaxerxes Longamanus, and he, in 457 BC, issued a decree found in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26, and that decree provided for the financial or material support of the sacrifices in the temple. So that's not the decree either. But the fourth one, which was also issued by Artaxerxes Longamanus, is the decree, That's tied to this prophecy. And we find it in Nehemiah chapter 2. So let's read Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. It says, And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asap, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So this is a decree, and we're told in Nehemiah 2.1 that it was issued in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, Nisan is the Jewish calendar, and it typically is March or April on our Gregorian calendars. And when you look at 444 B.C., which is what the reign of the king was, we find uh, that this date was March 5th, that uh, the the... the calendar that the decree was issued. Now I say we find not just in the Bible, there we're just told the month and the year, but archaeologists and other historical documents have been uncovered that give us the exact day that the decree was issued is March 5th. So this is the the prophecy said that there would be the issuing of a decree where plaza and moat would also be uh, built, not just the temple. And as you read the book of Nehemiah, you know that he returned to rebuild the walls of the city. You see in Nehemiah 2.8, where he requested timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress and for the wall of the city. In Nehemiah 6.15, we're told the walls of Jerusalem were completed in 52 days. In Nehemiah 11.1, the work continued as they rebuilt the infrastructure and repopulated the city. And in this prophecy of Daniel, it said it would be rebuilt in times of distress. And all throughout Nehemiah, you see this opposition that the people were facing. So we have the prophecy, again, fulfilled down to the specific details. And we know the exact date is March 5th, 444 B.C. So this is what starts this prophetic clock where there will be seven weeks, seven sevens, which is 49 years. And then 62 weeks, which multiplied by 7, is 434 years. So these, this is when this prophecy begins. Now, I told you we're dealing with the prophetic calendar, which is 360 days, and we are, you and I use the Gregorian calendar. So I want to, again, please don't get confused here. We're going we're gonna to put the cookies on the bottom shelf as we end this. Uh, but this is what I want you to see see that 173,880 days, that's what you need to remember. If you're going, are we talking Jewish calendar, Gregorian or Jillian? That's a whole other calendar I won't even bring in at this point. Um, You have 483 years times 360 days. So 173,880 days is what we're dealing with. Now, if you translate that to the Gregorian calendar, remember the decree is issued in 444 B.C., and we're going to see that A.D. 33 is the event we're looking at. So if you add those together, it's 476 years. You're saying, no, it should be 477, but you, you only have one year between when you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. So again, remember, we're dealing with the days, 476 years times 365 days gives you 173,740 days. And I told you at the beginning, this prophecy will come down to the literal very day. So this isn't good enough. We've got to find 140 days that we're still missing. Now, in the Gregorian calendar, you have something called leap years, right? Every four years, we add a day in February to account for uh, the difference in the, uh, moons and various things. So if you take 476 years, divide by four, you find 119 days. Now, when you're dealing with leap years, centennial years are not leap years. So if you round up 476 years, that's 500. You, need, you take away five days. But every 400th year is a leap year, so you add one back. So what that means is we have found 115 of the missing 140 days. If we take uh, these two numbers, we we are down to 25 days that we need to find. The decree was issued March 5th in 444, so that takes us to March 5th, 33 AD in the Gregorian calendar. So 25 days later would be March 30th, 33 AD. And when you look at... Uh, a Jewish calendar, you find that the, the day that we're dealing with there is uh, Nisan 10. And uh, the, the, the event that took place, it was Nisan 10 in 33 A.D. And the event that took place, according to history on that day, is Jesus Christ made what we call the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday, as we celebrate it, took place on this day, uh, March 30th. 33 AD. Now, again, I've gone into all that detail because I want you to see God's prophecy isn't just, hey, something's going to happen. He says, this is the, the event that's going to happen, and this is the day that it's going to happen. And it comes down over 500 years before any of this happened. God revealed literally the very day when Christ would enter into Jerusalem that would put an end to this first set. Of the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. And Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 19. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. On this day. You read in Luke 19.28. How the Pharisees were telling the crowds. Quit quit, uh, worshiping him as the Messiah. He's not it. Remember the crowds were crying out. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying palm branches and and their garments before the donkey that he's riding in on. And the word hosanna literally means save now, it's a prayer. And it was a prophecy as well. There was a psalm that talked about the coming of the Messiah, and they were singing out this song of ascent, Hosanna, save now. They were literally chanting, save us now. Remember, they were under the Roman domination. They were wanting to be set free. And the coming of the Messiah, the Jews wanted a military Messiah to set them free from Roman rule. But God said, as we saw earlier, the Messiah is coming for three things the first time to put an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity. God said, the reason my son is coming is to go and die on a cross to pay the penalty of death for your sins. And as Jesus is entering into the city and the Pharisees are saying, make the people stop, Jesus said, the very stones will cry out if the people are silent. And then we're told in Luke 19.42 that Jesus wept and he said, if you had known in this day This day, he says, even you, the things which make for peace, but they have been hidden from your eyes. You see, what Jesus says is to the religious leaders, the Pharisees who had spent their life studying the scriptures, he said, guys, you should have had this day circled in red on your calendar. You should have marked it. You should have known this was the very day. Why were you not ready? Why did you not understand the prophecy that had been revealed? And it wasn't just the prophecy of Daniel. As the people are crying out, Hosanna, it's the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. There it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But rather than receive Jesus as the promised Messiah, the people uh, at the prompting of the religious leaders, just a few days after that day, instead of crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they cried out, crucify him. Crucify him. Which is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Then after the 62 weeks, we saw the very day that he would enter. That's, that was that section of the prophecy, and it says, and then after that, just a few days later, on Nisan 14 and 33 A.D., what we have is Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. on our calendar, Jesus was crucified. Daniel said the Messiah would be cut off, pointing to the death that he would die. And do you remember why he would die? to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty of death, to make atonement for our sins. Now, as we know, that was not the end of the story. Not only is there more to the prophecy, but after Jesus was crucified on the cross, the scriptures tell us he was buried in the tomb and he rose three days later And he walked the earth for 40 days, appearing to more than 500 witnesses. And then he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God, where he's waiting to return for us at the rapture. Jesus told his followers, I have to leave so the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, can come. And when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt the Christians, the believers in the first century, the church was born. And so we're, we're, we're in what theologians call the church age. It began at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And we're in this interim period called the church age, and we're waiting for something to happen to restart this clock that has been stopped. Remember, we've seen the first two set of sevens, but there's still a final seven-year period, a final week where there are some events that have to occur. And as we're in this waiting period... The event that is going to come that will restart the clock is the rapture. The rapture is the, the Latin word raptura, which means to be caught up. And we find the rapture described in passages like John 14, verses 2 through 3. It's in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one through 58, and 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 17. It says that Jesus will meet the believers in the air. He doesn't return physically to the earth. Zechariah 14 describes the second coming where Christ will physically stand again on the earth and the Mount of Olives will be split in half. So the second coming is still to come. That's that's something we're about to see. But right now we're dealing with this rapture. And you see I've labeled it the pre-tribulational rapture because I believe the scriptures are clear that Christians will be taken from the earth and will not go through this terrible time of tribulation. We see that in First Thessalonians one ten, where it says to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians five nine says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. As Christians, we will have been taken up to heaven where we will be with Christ waiting to return. So we will not be here for this period of tribulation. Now, what is this period of tribulation? Well, as you look at Daniel 9.27... Remember, we still have a seven-year period left to account for. And Daniel 9.27 says, And he, this is any Christ, it says, And he uh, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This is our final seven years. But in the middle of the week, which would be three and a half years in, He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now it says in Daniel 9.26, And the people of the prince, notice there that this is the little P. This isn't speaking of Jesus Christ, who earlier was capital P., and who also is called the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, again, using capital letters. When you see the little letter, we're dealing with uh, the satanic counterfeit. So it says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, that was fulfilled literally as well. Because Jesus was crucified in 33 AD. And in 70 AD, 37 years later, Titus came in and destroyed Rome. I mean, destroyed, Rome destroyed Jerusalem. So the Roman army fulfills this prophecy. Remember, as we saw earlier in Daniel, you have the Roman Empire that would rise, and then there's the revived Roman Empire that Antichrist will come from. And so these are all tied together. In Daniel chapter 2, we saw he would rise out of the revived Roman Empire. Daniel 7, 8 told us the little horn will come from this revived Roman Empire. So here we're dealing with the final Antichrist, we already talked about Antiochus Epiphanes in an earlier sermon. If you were here for that, you remember he was a type of Antichrist. But here, Jesus is in now in the seven-year tribulation. The final Antichrist is who we're dealing with. He spoke, Jesus spoke of him in Matthew 24, 15, and 21. There, Jesus said, "'Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, "'which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, "'standing in the holy place, let the reader understand,' For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall. So this is that abomination of desolation Daniel's speaking of. We're three and a half years in the midpoint of the week. Antichrist will reveal himself for who he is, the satanic representative who will demand to be worshiped as God in the rebuilt temple that will be there in Jerusalem. And this will be in the middle of the tribulation, where then the, the great tribulation, that final, horrible period, will occur. and this is that 70th seven, our missing week that is yet to occur. And it will come to an end, it says, in Daniel 9:27, with the destruction of the one who makes desolate, as Jesus, who's the anointed one, the ruler returns. And this is when we have the second coming. Of Christ, this is where Jesus returns physically to the earth, and those last three things we saw in Daniel nine twenty four occur. And so, what happens when Christ returns is there's the Battle of Armageddon. This is where the armies of heaven, which we who are raptured believers will be part of as we return, there will be this uh, destruction of Satan and his followers. The Battle of Armageddon, you find it there in Revelation sixteen and and chapter nineteen as well. Satan is bound, as Revelation twenty verse two tells us, and put in the abyss for a thousand years. And then you have the beast and false prophet. Remember, you have this antichrist and you have there's this unholy trinity we talked about earlier in this series. Two of the three are put into the lake of fire. This is what we call hell in Revelation nineteen, nineteen through twenty. So those two are judged, period. They're gone. They won't ever come out. Satan has been put in this abyss. And he's going to be released at the end of a 1,000 years. Now, the 1,000 years, as we've talked about earlier, is the millennial kingdom. The word thousand is the Latin word millennial. And we find it uh, six times there in Revelation chapter 20. Now, what you find is "kailea," which is the Greek word. Uh, again, all of our theological terms are tied to, these, to the Latin, rapture, rapturo, uh, millennium for the 1,000 years. And so during this millennial kingdom, uh, we will be reigning with Christ on the earth. Satan will be bound, and then you will have uh, an event that will happen at the end of Revelation 20. There's something called the Battle of Gog and Magog that you see in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. This is where Satan is released from the abyss... He regathers the unbelievers who are on the earth. We talked about this earlier in the series. And they will go against Jesus who is seated physically on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. There's this uh, destruction of the the army. God says, I'm done with rebellion once and for all. Satan in Revelation 20.10 is cast into the lake of fire. Friends, if you have this idea that Satan is in charge of hell, that he's reigning over hell, that's wrong. He will be in hell for sure, but he is there being judged for all eternity. He's not running the place. He's in the lake of fire being judged for his rebellion. God says, I'm done with rebellion once and for all. The scriptures tell us that the earth and the heavens that are corrupted by sin are destroyed with fire. And then an event will happen called the great white throne judgment. We find the great white throne in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. And this is what it says. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. This is Jesus Christ. John 5 tells us that God the Father has given the judgment to the Son. Jesus is on the throne. And it says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books, plural, were open. Notice that. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. And the dead gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this judgment, friends, is not for Christians. This is only for non-believers. As Christians, our sins were dealt with at the cross. As believers who have accepted his death in our place, the payment was made. And so for the Christian, we will go into the eternal state. We will be taken into the new heavens and the new earth that you see that will be recreated. The old earth, the old heavens that are corrupted by sin are done away with. Satan and his minions, they've been thrown into the lake of fire as well. We will be in the eternal state forever, enjoying eternity. But the non-Christians will be in the lake of fire. Because it says they are depending upon their own way. Remember it said the book was open singular, the book of life. And when we come to faith in Christ when we accept his death in our place, his payment is, is put in our account and we are declared righteous based upon his righteousness. It said that none of these people's names were in the book of life because they rejected him. And so God opens the books plural. He's, he's a fair and just God. If you're here today or you're worshiping online and saying, you know, I, I feel like I've lived a good enough life to get to God. I've I've been pretty good. I've done this many great things. God is going to look at your entire resume. He's going to see lots of good things you may have done. But he will also see the sins you've committed. And every one of us have committed sins. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his standard of perfection, as we talked about earlier in this series. And so God will say to the people standing there, Jesus says, uh, you're a sinner and you rejected my payment in your place, so you get to make the payment yourself because uh, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. God is a loving God. He is a holy God as well who says there is wrong that has to be accounted for. And since you rejected my gift of grace and said you want to do it on your own, you get to do it on your own. And it's called the second death because they've already physically died once in order to be there before the throne. And so God says, for all eternity, you too go to the lake of fire. Friends, I take no joy in telling you there will be people in hell. But it will be because they rejected God's gift of grace. As Christians, we will not be there. And you don't have to be there as well if you are here this morning and you're saying, well, Roger, I thought I could do it my way. I thought I could do enough good. I thought if I came to church enough, if I did X, Y, or Z, I would would make it to heaven. God tells us that nobody makes it that way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he said, but there is a way. Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have the gift of eternal life. God says the way home to heaven is by acknowledging you are a sinner, recognizing you owe a penalty, a penalty of death which I came to atone for. When it says Jesus made atonement, the word that is used literally means to cover, to expiate. It's a legal term that says there was a penalty owed and there was a payment made that closed the books and removed it. And Jesus says, I have given you that gift of grace. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, "If you, For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And he says, if you will receive my gift of grace, I will welcome you into the family. You will be home with me for all eternity rather than separated from me in the lake of fire. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do so. We're going to end today by giving you an opportunity to do so. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You can be at home at the kitchen table. You can be on your couch watching this message. All you have to do is acknowledge in your heart, I'm a sinner. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. It's to say to God, I recognize I've not lived a perfect life. And because I have not been perfect, I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. And I understand God that you gave your son, the Messiah who would be cut off on the cross to be the payment, the payment for my sins, and I accept his death in my place. And God, I believe he's who he said he was, that he rose from the dead. Remember, two other people were crucified that day. Two thieves died with Jesus. Both of those men went into the grave. One of them, you'll recall, accepted Christ. He said, remember me this day when you enter into paradise. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me because he placed his faith and trust in the promised Messiah. And so if you'd like to do that, I'm going to close with a prayer. You can pray this in the privacy of your own mind. You don't have to even say it out loud. But it's your way of saying to God, I'm accepting your gift of grace. I'm accepting Jesus, you as my Savior, your death in my place. If you'd like to do that, will you pray this prayer with me? Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. And as a sinner, I deserve the penalty of death. You tell us in your word in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And today, Jesus, I accept you to be my savior, my payment. I believe you're who you said you were, the son of God, the promised Messiah, that you came and you died on a cross to pay the penalty of death that I owed. I believe that you rose from the dead three days later, showing that you conquered sin and death. And I accept you as my Savior. And I thank you, God, that you have welcomed me into your family and that I get to spend all eternity with you. Thank you for dying for me. Help me now to live my life as a follower of yours. I pray these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or maybe for the first time understood what Jesus Christ did for you, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be here at the front after the service. If you prayed that prayer online, just email us here at Wayside Chapel. We'd love to get you some materials to help you follow up and begin your new walk with Christ. For the rest of us who have already received Jesus as our Savior, again, what we've seen today is who he is and what he did and that he is coming back again one day. And you may have friends or family members, co-workers or schoolmates who don't yet know who Jesus is. So take this message of the good news of grace and share it with them this week. God bless you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.